Good afternoon, and thank you for joining us. I'm Amanda Newman, a senior project manager with the Aspen Institute's Economic Opportunities Program. I am thrilled to welcome you to today's conversation, how the workforce system can advance workplace health and safety during and after the pandemic, particularly coming out of Labor Day, as we reflect on the continued struggle to achieve fair, safe, and equitable working conditions for all. This conversation is part of the Economic Opportunities Program's ongoing job quality and practice series, in which we highlight innovative work by practitioners and businesses to advance job quality. We're grateful to Prudential Financial for their support of this work. At the Economic Opportunities Program, we focus on advancing a more just and inclusive economy by expanding individuals' opportunities to connect to quality work, to participate in business ownership, and to build the economic stability necessary to pursue opportunity. In the wake of the coronavirus pandemic, an area of job quality that's come into stark relief is workplace health and safety, particularly as stories emerge of employee outbreaks in workplaces ranging from grocery stores to meatpacking plants to mass transit facilities. Concerns about safety on the job are not new, but as the coronavirus is creating a new set of workplace hazards, and as workplaces reopen, more workers are being forced to make difficult decisions between returning to work to support themselves and their families and protecting their health and the health of their loved ones. Advancing safety during the pandemic can also be particularly challenging, given the lack of clear guidance from the Occupational Health and Safety Administration, the federal agency that oversees health and safety hazards on the job. Importantly, as we'll discuss, risks from the virus are not distributed equally due to factors rooted in structural racism, including occupational segregation and unequal access to health care. Black, Indigenous, and workers of color have experienced more severe health consequences from COVID-19 and are more likely to work in frontline, non-remote jobs with high levels of exposure. This webinar will explore some of the crucial ways workforce development professionals can advance workplace health and safety during the pandemic. Earlier this summer, we published a brief we'll share in the chat about some of the innovative approaches workforce professionals are taking to address workplace health and safety during the pandemic. We'll talk about some of these strategies today with a few of the workforce innovators who shared their ideas and experiences with us as we developed that brief. We'll touch on the implications of these strategies for employer engagement, for soliciting worker input, participating in policy advocacy, and addressing job quality issues. Additionally, we know these strategies require resources, so we'll consider what funders can do to support workforce organizations to adopt these types of strategies within their organizations. Toward the end of the discussion, we'll open the floor to questions from the audience. Before we start, let's review our technology. All attendees are muted during the webinar, but we welcome your questions. Please use the Q&A box on the bottom of the Zoom window for questions. You can also upvote questions of interest to you. Many of you submitted questions in advance. Thank you for that. And we'll try to get to as many as we can. We encourage you to tweet about this conversation and we'll be using the hashtag job quality, all one word. If you have any technical issues during the webinar, you can send us a message through the chat or email us at eop.program at aspeninstitute.org. Finally, this webinar is being recorded and will be shared via email and posted on our website. And now I'm really thrilled to introduce our panelists. Ugo Avila is the Business Services Coordinator at CERCO in Southwest Suburban Cook County. 
Chris Dews is a policy advocate at Job Opportunities Task Force in Baltimore. Claire Minson is the founder and principal consultant at Sandra Grace LLC. And we'll also feature pre-recorded video from Danny Castro, an employment specialist at the HOPE program in New York City. Thank you so much to each of our panelists for joining us. We're going to get started with a little bit of background on you and your roles. So Ugo, you're a business services coordinator for the Southwest Suburban Cook County American Job Center, west of Chicago. Can you tell us a little more about CERCO and what the business services team does specifically? Of course. Thank you, Amanda, so much for that nice introduction. Uh, so once again, my name is Ugo. I am the coordinator of business services for the Southwest Suburban Cook County American Job Center. We are directly founded by the Chicago Cook Workforce Partnership to leverage what's called the Workforce Innovation Opportunity Act, or we all program as a lot of uh, workforce development individuals know it. Um, my company, Serco, is a nationwide organization. Uh, our primary focus is to provide what we like to call upward mobility, and we tend to focus on training and workforce placement services, uh, specifically in aiding and assisting individuals with everything from job readiness, preparation, placement, and follow-up services, and in uh, during that whole process, administering supportive services as well. Great. And uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the business services role? Oh, of course, of course. So uh, with focusing on workforce development, there, there's two categories of clients that we service. It's the individual themselves that's currently looking for employment. And also we service the employers that we're looking to assist and partner with. So as a business service person, uh, our, our role is to really establish and maintain relationship with employers which is the other side of the coin. So there's a lot of support and services that goes into the individual, which is, is very profoundly and needed. But once you've prepared the individual and, and, and you got them ready to start hitting the employment market, it's really important to have established a relationship with employers so you can understand what the labor market information uh, that you have obtained is, uh, have, a, have a better understanding on what the pulse of the economy and your local area are, who's hiring for what roles, duties, responsibilities, requirements, and being able to establish those relations with employers gives you a lot of inside information that may not just be found in the job posting. Uh, so, so a lot of what we do is actually go out, knock on doors, establish these relationships with employers, uh, tour their facilities, uh, have a better understanding of what the duties and responsibilities are, actually view somebody producing or creating or operating in a particular position so that we can go back to our clients, our customers that we service and be able to inform them of what the duties and responsibilities are from a first-hand perspective instead of a second-hand perspective, which may be reading the job description and then inferring certain things from that job description. Great, and we're gonna come back a little bit later in the webinar to talking more about your direct engagement and relationships with employers. Claire, I'm gonna to turn to you. You've played a variety of roles in the workforce development field. Can you share a little bit about some of your past roles, about your trajectory, and how they've shaped how you think about the role of workforce development in advancing workplace health and safety and other issues related to job quality? Yeah, sure. Um, thank you for having me here today. I'm going to give the disclaimer I always give. I am parenting at home and the four-year-old doesn't always respect um, <laughs> the boundaries that we set. So um, I may have to parent while we're doing this. But, um, you know, I really started off in workforce development, providing direct services, individual counseling. Um, so I am a licensed therapist in Maryland, um, but as well as um, developing, overseeing uh, job readiness, job training, programming, um, particularly supporting um, 
predominantly black workers in Baltimore. Um, and so in that role, not only responsible for the day-to-day -day operations, but as well as kind of program design and delivery, engaging with employers, um, building out industry sector training and industry advisory councils. And then from there, um, transition into a more explicit intermediary role, uh, focusing on race explicit program design, but also supporting um, practitioners in Baltimore, understanding what it means to really adopt a racial equity lens or framework to workforce development program design, and then um, connecting them with opportunities to funnel that up operationally and organizationally. Um, and that role really helped, I think, crystallize the reason we need to be really explicit about race um, specific or race conscious programming and design because like we can see the outcomes are all racialized, right? The folks who are typically at the bottom are communities of color and individuals of color. Um, and so from there, I was able to then kind of really pull together all of those skills and then come to New Orleans, uh, which is where I'm based and work again at the intermediary level, kind of more on a capacity building technical assistance um, role where I'm supporting direct service providers, but didn't have the same level of authority to speak about structural racism and institutional racism as explicitly as I was providing that support in my previous role. And so it really was an opportunity to figure out how do I then influence and have these conversations in a way um, that still is, allows me to move the day-to-day -day work forward, if you will, um, but also allows us to put the real, the root issues on the table um, so that we don't leave them out of the discussions. And so I've transitioned now out of that role um, into a, into a my own business really, where I can work with individuals and organizations who want to have explicit conversations about race, racism and workforce development and or in the nonprofit sector um, and how they engage their employer partners, their community partners, et cetera. Um, and so all of that work together has really allowed me to get clear that they're not separate and apart from each other, um, that they're all connected, that the workforce development system is one that has tremendous power and opportunity, um, but we just don't leverage it. And so I know we'll get into more of that later on, but hopefully that was a good enough overview for you and everyone here. That's great. And we're really happy to have you with us to really ensure that we're centering equity in this really important discussion about workplace conditions and, and working conditions. And so, Chris, I'm going to turn to you. And uh, I, interestingly, we're having a conversation about workforce development, and yet you are a policy advocate, and you sit within an organization that also offers a workforce development training program. And so can you tell us a little bit more about job opportunity task forces, different work streams, and about the relationship between the policy advocacy and the workforce development teams? I certainly can do that. Well, first of all, thank you for having me, Amanda. Uh, my name is Christopher Dews, and I am, of course, a policy advocate for the Job Opportunities Task Force. Just as a general overview, we are a nonprofit independent organization that works specifically to help low-wage workers advance to higher-wage jobs. And to do that, we utilize a three-fold model, uh, public policy, which is part one, uh, research, and public education. I guess I'm actually going to take those in reverse. Uh, the way that we kind of uh, maneuver all of it is that the direct experiences from our program participants, those at Project Jumpstart, which is our pre-apprenticeship construction training program, uh, our community bail fund that we also do, which is part of our programs, where in which we uh, help those who are currently uh, you know, on pre-trial successfully re-enter into the community uh, thanks to their unaffordable cash bails and homely 
costly home detention model. So basically, we, we kind of fund getting people out of incarceration based off of certain criteria. And we also have a Train Baltimore website where in which we help people find low cost or no cost training programs. And so what we see that people go through in those predicaments uh, from, from free trial, from impact the people in the communities uh, affects our public policy and our agenda. So both our programs and public policy agendas are supported by the research that we do, which is our third prong, which includes uh, using research to educate, engage, and empower really policymakers, workers, and people of different communities. Just to give like a, a very brisk and brief example, uh, in real time, punitive child support enforcement. We are all familiar with how child support works. The vast majority of people uh, who, who do this work are somehow in, in fact, especially if you're doing workforce development, you're gonna come across child support issues and how they affect your participants. Way too many of our Jumpstart program graduates and participants would have their licenses suspended immediately uh, for lack of payment of child support, or they'll have their wages garnished. Uh, both from both the state or federal levels. And so what we were discovering was well, it doesn't matter if we're putting people to work if their licenses are continually get suspended or if the amount of money that they're making on their paychecks continue to be garnished by child support, which de-incentivizes them from working. So what this means is that um, on the policy side, well, first of all, I'll start off by saying on the research side, we then looked at this issue, uh, found some numbers to back it up, and then released a report called the criminalization of poverty, where we were showing how people end up in the criminal justice system are being generally screwed by the system based off of not having enough money and how they're getting uh, backed off on a lack of access to employment for those same purposes. And so then we go to Annapolis and advocate on those issues. We're advocating right now uh, for the elimination of driver's license suspensions for child support, but that's totally based within what we're seeing from people in our communities. And then we continually release reports to help educate policymakers on that same note. I hope that that was clear. I know I tend to talk very fast and can uh, be a little edgy. So. That was great. And we're so uh, fortunate to have you with us to really help us think about the connections between workforce development programming and policy advocacy and ways that those pieces might work more together and ways that really draw from the lived experiences of workers in those training programs. So that was a really mm -hmm. great example. So Claire, we're going to come back to you. And so as you discussed, your work really focuses on the intersection of workforce development and race equity. And so we're hoping you can do a little bit more to set the stage for us as we think about why the field should view workplace health and safety as a key racial equity issue uh, all the time, but particularly in this moment. Yeah, so um, great question. And I wrote like three different ways that I can answer the question. So I will do my best <laughs> to make sure that the response is concise. But I think I want to start with when we talk about a racial equity framework, we're really talking about four, four, four different kind of approaches or ways to think about it. One is analyzing data and race. I mean, data by race and ethnicity. Two is understanding disparities and learning why they exist. Three is looking at root causes from a structural standpoint. And four is naming race explicitly when talking about problems and their solutions. And so if we take that framework and we apply it to the context of workplace health and safety in this current kind of like double pandemic world we're living in, when we think about um, which communities are disproportionately impacted by the COVID, COVID pandemic, right? We say they're communities of color. And so what does that mean for creating a workplace context where workers are not only protected physically, um, but also protected in terms of their, um, their health? Um, and how do we think about health in a more 
kind of broadened sense, if you will, right? So a lot of times we think about um, their physical health, they have a cold or not. Um, but in the land of um, kind of rampant structural racism and institutional racism and, and microaggressions, we also have to think about mental and emotional health of workers. And we're, we're seeing numbers where communities of color disproportionately impacting, dying at higher rates, hospitalized at higher rates. And we think about what it means about workers who are predominantly workers of color, also in low wage, higher exposed jobs. Like there's no way to separate these two conversations. And so I think a part of the conversation is how do we, how do we make sure that we're, we're um, thinking about what a workplace culture, what a truly in inclusive workplace culture looks like um, recognizing that workers bring their whole selves. And so, yes, we want to make sure workers have masks, but how do we also ensure that there's emotional, there's access to um, mental health services, right, for um, workers who still must come to work when family members may be sick and or seeing black and brown people shot and killed on the TV on a regular basis, right? That trauma that they experience externally, but also making sure that the environment is one that is not also perpetuating those, that racial trauma. Um, and so all that to say is they're not separate. Um, you can't really adopt and apply a racial equity framework without thinking about job quality, worker health, and safety. That's really helpful as we think about being really explicit about race in this work. And also as we think about in this moment, I think there's a tendency to think about health and safety as really uh, physical, right? Particularly as we're dealing with the virus. And so what you're doing is you're offering a more holistic approach for thinking about health and safety that's really grounded in equity. So that's really helpful. Uh, so we're doing a little bit of context setting. And so I want to turn to you, Ugo. And as we know, workforce organizations, many of, many of the people in organizations who are, are part of this discussion right now, our participants, have had to quickly adapt to changes since the start of the pandemic. So can you share a little bit about what's been top of mind for your business services team, particularly when it comes to workplace health and safety and ways you've had to adapt your work during the pandemic? So the interesting thing about the business service side of things I mentioned um, in the brief intro is part of our role is to actually go out there and interact with the employer on site. And so safety has always been a big concern. Uh, you, you touched a little bit on OSHA and how that plays a factor. And so when we walk into these facilities, these manufacturing environments, we, we have to go in there with PPE from helmets to eye protection, boots or whatever the case may be. So we've always had that kind of training uh, in place. But now that the pandemic has really hit in, it, we had to take that to a new level. Uh, so just like many organizations, I'm sure we had a pivot. We went virtually, uh, the pendulum went too far to the left and we all went virtual. And then we kind of realized that uh, there's something that gets lost from that lack of human interaction, whether that's what our participants, not to say that they weren't necessarily being served, but the, there was a little bit of a disconnect when you don't get that, that how, how are you doing face-to-face -to, -face to be able to assist and work. Well, the same thing kind of happens on the employer side. So you work on developing these relationships with the employers so you can have very candid conversations and, and really understand the inner workings of what is going on in these facilities. And, and you, you build up a certain uh, level of respect and, and honesty toward each other. And as you start kind of going virtual, just like the interaction with our participants started kind of getting a little bit disconnected, that seemed to have happened with the employer. So there was a quick rush for us to figure out a way, how can we start going back on these job sites to really start talking with these employers uh, to establish and maintain the relationships we work so hard to 
to uh, obtain and also how to build new relationships because that's a big part of the business service side of things is not just maintaining the relationships you've built but also establishing new relationships which gives you a lot more flexibility in regards to making decisions of which employers are you working with and which employers aren't you working with which I'll, I'll get into a little bit later on in the conversation but we definitely had to talk to the employers to get a better understanding of what are they doing are they following the uh, uh, the, the guidelines that CDC is putting in place, social distancing, masks, are they having dividers, have they reduced workforce, uh, numbers of uh, people in certain areas, those kind of things, because a lot of these production facilities were really kind of uh, elbow to elbow to maximize space, and especially in an urban environment like the city of Chicago where I'm at, uh, you know, square footage can get really expensive. So when employers have to figure out uh, how much a machine takes up versus the operators are gonna take up, you, you find that within safety and OSHA, uh, you're still kind of cramming a lot of people into a lot of kind of small, uh, small spaces. So we had conversations with employers to get a better understanding of what was going on. What's really nice is because we, we work not only with the employer side, but also with the customer side, we were able to get feedback, not just from the employers and our interactions with them, but we reached out to our candidates and, and clients that we had on site to get a feeling for, are these things happening? What are you noticing? And then plus we really had to take a step ourselves and actually do our own homework and our own research and figure out what are the guidelines? How can I be protecting myself? Because obviously we're, we're going on to site. And if I go there and I come back into the office, am I exposing my, um, my coworkers and counterparts to something that I may have been really captured? So there was a lot of conversation in regards to how to do it the best possible way. But as restrictions started kind of lifting and we started moving to different phases here, especially specifically in Illinois, it started to open the door to say, okay, what can I do? What can I come in? Uh, when I come in, what am I going to expect? Uh, and, and we had that ahead of time. So the, the most important takeaway I can say right now is communication is such a big factor here, uh, communicating with your clients and communicating with the employers, especially when you're planning to do these on-site visits, uh, get a better understanding picture of what it's going to be like. Am I going to have to uh, get my temperature taken? Is there a release of consent form I'm going to have to fill out? Uh, do I have to walk in and put on gloves, uh, masks? all those kind of things. So definitely top of mind safety has been a big part. Uh, it's always been a part because of the type of work that we do being on site and some of these uh, facilities are, are hazardous to some capacity. And so uh, OSHA needs to always be taken into place, but now adding this additional with the pandemic, uh, it kind of took us to one step further being more conscious. What was really nice on my particular end is I deal a lot with food manufacturing. And I found that a lot of food manufacturers were very quick to pivot into the safety realm because so much of what they have to do is so much safety related with the spread of disease and cultivation of, of bacteria and things of that sort. And so they've, they, they had really strong sanitation programs already in place. Uh, we were required to wear suits or boots or, or those throwaway kind of disposables and things of that prior. And so it made kind of that transition of safety still move forward. Not to say that there weren't issues with some employers in, in that particular industry, but I found a lot of employers I was working with really took this very seriously and they pivoted really fast to make sure that safety was a priority for them. So that's really helpful because you're helping us think about some different ways that workforce development has had to pivot, pivot to being remote and now pivoting and reopening in terms of what that means for business services teams in terms of the 
how they're gathering information and whether they're returning on site. And it's also really helpful to hear about your dual approach to gathering information about the workplace. Yes, you're asking questions of employers, but you're also asking questions of alumni who are on the job right now, which is really helpful as we think about ways that workforce organizations can really solicit worker input, particularly in this moment when there are a lot of unknowns. And so, uh, Chris, I'm going to turn to you to talk a little bit more about what workers are experiencing. And we're hoping you can help us set the stage in terms of some of the key challenges your organization is seeing workers and community members confront related to workplace health and safety during the pandemic. You got it. Uh, I'll take that right now. So um, depending on what statistics you're viewing, uh, you may notice that the infection rates specifically in the state of Maryland have decreased precipitously uh, when it comes to COVID-19. However, generally when it comes to worker health and safety uh, in Maryland, many issues generally persist. I'll say right off the top, the Maryland Healthy Working Families Act is a law that we passed in the state of Maryland in 2018. And just to be clear, it took six years to be able to pass this. And uh, the Maryland Healthy Working Families Act only gives five days of paid leave to certain workers. And we have to consistently fight every legislative session to protect that. So I just want to say off the top, you have a lot of uh, Maryland residents, specifically just talking about Maryland here, who are already kind of in trouble out, you know, outside of the federal moves that have been happening to increase paid leave by about a week. Like generally speaking, most Marylanders do not have access to paid leave, right? Five days during a quarantine, during the coronavirus, it's just not enough. So we're looking to expand the Maryland Healthy Working Families Act and looking at other worker protections. The other thing we're seeing definitely on the ground is that a lot of employers, construction and otherwise, just don't have access to PPE or are not enforcing PPE, which is personal protective equipment on job sites. There's a lot of like disbelief as to whether or not um, you know, this, this virus is, is serious and, it, and if it's real. And uh, we see a lot of issues with regards to that, as well as a retaliation against a lot of workers. So somebody will say, well, I, you know, I, I, I can't be here. I have to take care of my family member. I'm sick. I, you know, I, I really can't be there. And they're finding their jobs being either minimized hourly, so they're losing hours, or they're just being let go from workforce positions altogether. And then on top of all of that, you have what's called the digital divide, which is just a general issue that has arisen thanks to the coronavirus. You may say to yourself, what does that have to do with workplace safety? But since everything that we do from filing petitions to uh, research and everything is done online and a lot of positions have moved to remote, having access to affordable broadband Wi-Fi access is key to just generally any working citizen in the state of Maryland and all across the nation. And so we're seeing specifically for communities of color, you don't have a lot of access to, uh, to um, Wi-Fi and uh, broadband connections. So when they do want to file a petition, when they do want to uh, go after OSHA, they may not have access as stringently as other people might have. Uh, so most people think a digital divide is some type of issue that has to do with children and education, but it actually expands specifically when you're looking at uh, safer workplace options. I'll just say this very quickly. So Project Jumpstart, uh, which is our construction training program, is, is very big on workplace safety. And uh, we have a hybrid model right now because of the coronavirus uh, that's, that's spreading across the country where we do everything online. But if somebody doesn't have access to that type of opportunity because they don't have access to Wi-Fi or internet connection, then this basically becomes a barrier to employment. And that just becomes, when I say barrier to employment, I mean overall a barrier to better, higher paying jobs with more protections. So there's a lot of different types of issues that I could talk about, um, but specifically issues that are traditional and non-traditional in nature when it comes to workplace health and safety. But specifically, that's what we're focused on. Uh, expanding workers' rights, uh, making sure that access to PPE is given there. This is specifically what we're hearing from the community. And that workplace retaliation doesn't happen because somebody gets sick. So that's what we're looking at. Great. 
Thanks so much. So we're going to dive a little bit more deeply into each of your strategies. But before we do, we're going to highlight another key role in the workforce development system that focuses on direct engagement with program participants. I had a chance to speak with Danny Castro, an employment specialist at the HOPE program in New York City, who supports program participants and alumni to connect to job opportunities. Danny also happens to be an alum of the organization's training programs one of the organization's training programs. We're gonna play a few clips of the conversation. Danny's first gonna discuss how he supports job seekers to navigate health and safety concerns, then how he supports alumni on the job, and finally, how he supports clients who may choose not to pursue employment in this moment. My inclination is, is to really just have an honest discussion you know, with, with, with people about their priorities, you know, their, their needs, um, and then what jobs would we have available. I try my very best to, to offer, you know, every detail and every piece of information that I have on job lead. Uh, but the reality is sometimes we don't always know everything about the job conditions on, on the site. Um, sometimes an employer will, will sort of sell us a dream, so to speak. And then we get some, some, uh, some of our, our candidates on the site. Um, and the feedback we're getting is is quite different. So um, I will definitely be as transparent as possible with, with, with our participants. Transparency is really key for me because I feel like it, it builds trust. If I see uh, a concern rising about workplace safety, um, it usually jumps to the top of my priority list. I'll do my best to reach out to that, to that client as soon as possible and you know hear, hear from them in, in their own words what their concerns are. Um, and, and again, a, a, lot of, a lot of times this, this feedback is very valuable for other participants that we may be considering for that same opportunity. Um, this may be a situation where we might want to consider putting a hold on, on that opportunity. Um, and then the conversation with the client um, usually moves to a place of, um, you know, what, what are our alternatives? You know what I mean? What, what, what are, what are, what's the plan B right now? Um, but we also need to understand you know what 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 kind of what kind of barriers the the, the candidate is up against um you know a, a lot of times people people will get a job and they will unfortunately deal with abusive circumstances and um you know safety circumstances that are not up to code uh because they can't afford to to go into another job search phase for another two to four weeks um so, you know, we, we, we do our best to come up with, with, with any, any, any solutions, you know what I mean? Can we transition to a part-time job uh, so we have a little bit more time to, uh, to, to job search and try to get you in, into a better position? Um, you know, we, we have a lot of discussions around, you know, potentially making a, a lateral move, you know, instead of taking a step backwards to, to move up. If a person decides that, um, that Entering the workforce is not the best thing for them at the moment. Uh, it's always a decision that the whole program supports uh, because we don't want to have somebody, you know, working on the job in, in a mental state or, or a physical state that is, that is not healthy for them. So uh, one thing that's really great about the organization is that we have, we, we have a really strong emphasis on, on health and, and wellness. Uh, we have a wellness team that uh, that helps connect our participants to you know various city organizations that help you know with, with a variety of things: housing insecurity, food insecurity, um, combating recidivism. You know, there's, there's tons, tons of things. 
Great. So thanks so much to Danny for those insights, particularly related to direct engagement with program participants. If you're interested in hearing more from this interview, we'll be featuring an extended version of the recording on our website in the next week or so. So please look out to that. I'm now going to turn back to you, Ugo. And so you talked a little bit about how you've been gathering information about working conditions from employers, from, uh, from alumni who are, in, who are in jobs right now and also from actually getting on site. So can you talk about a time during the pandemic that perhaps you found out some information about working conditions that you were concerned about and how you responded? Uh, thank you so much, Amanda. Uh, I think Dan Daniel hit a, hit a lot of great points to the conversation here. Uh, and I think it's very important to be transparent. And so when we as business service representatives go out to job sites is to get a much better sense of what is the employment, what are the environment, are there any hazards, conditions. Um, I, I find a lot of times that most people leave employment because of some environmental factor, uh, either bad management or safety concerns of some sort. And so it's very important to get a grasp so when you go back to your participants and you pitch these jobs and these opportunities to individuals that you're setting them up for success instead of setting them up for failure. Uh, and so when we have conversations with employers, you're, you're hearing really one side of the coin, right? The employer are, is probably going to tell you things like, oh, everything's great, everything's fantastic. And, and you're like, that sounds great, but you want to get the other side of the coin. And that's really where you, you want to start having these conversations with your um, participants. Uh, I found over the years, of, I've been doing this kind of work now for a little bit over eight years now, that really your participants are your best resource when it comes to employment because you really want to hear from them in regards to what kind of work they're interested in, what companies are catching their eye, and that gives you direction in regards to who I should be talking to because my participants are telling me this is who I, I want you to talk to, Hugo. This is the companies that we're interested in. This is what's catching our attention and this is what we're interested in. Where I find that a lot of times some business service reps have a lot of issues because they're being reactive, meaning that they're engaging with employers that reached out to them and thus they're turning around and, and presenting these job opportunities to their clients instead of going out there and finding employers that they know that their clients are already interested in. So that helps service a little bit of some of the hesitancy of, of participation and employers because the participants are already telling you, hey, I've heard these things about this company. I like them. Can you talk to them? How can you get my foot in the door there? And I feel that's a much more uh, proactive approach to job development than the other. But specifically to your question, uh, the way we deal with a lot of employer scenarios is we start doing a little bit of an ease back situation. So when we're engaging with an employer and they're telling us everything's great, and then we reach out to our participants, say, how, how are things? And we're getting that mixed story. Uh, we, we go with our participant story because we know they're, we, we've built a strong rapport and relationship with this participant because we help them from day one as they enter our program and they move forward with successful employment. And we take their concerns and, and, and uh, comments very seriously. And so some of the things we've done, and this goes back to a comment I made earlier about why it's so important, not just to maintain relationships, to, to engage new employer relationships, is that it gives you that flexibility to be able to step back from the employer relationship and then pivot and start engaging with a new employer relationship that you've built upon. And so the way we've dealt with this with some of the employers where we had scenarios during this specific COVID uh, uh, pandemic that's occurring right now is we've really stepped back from the employer in regards to engaging with them. So we're not necessarily proactively promoting their job opportunities. We're not proactively sending them candidates to, uh, to fill out these job forms. We're kind of taking a step back. We're giving them a little bit of time and then we're re-engaging with our participants. Had things improved? Should we, can we start re-engaging with this employer, kind of taking it from them uh, as, as, a, as a temperature? How are things feeling? 
should we are things better now? Have these things been addressed? And then we take the concerns that those participants have provided to us, and then we ourselves address them. And I think that's very important that that business service uh, representatives out there that are on this webinar really understand that we 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 have a requirement of obligation to advocate for our participants. And so I know sometimes it can be very kind of um, frightening or off-putting to, to call out an employer and say, hey, Mr. Employer, this is what's going on here. What are you going to do about this? But in reality, we, we need to feel confident that we're doing this because we're doing this for our participants. And I feel that having multiple employer relationships and continuously developing new relationships gives you a little bit more confidence where if you do kind of call out an employer and, and, and you tell them this is what you need to do and they give you pushback that you can feel confident that, well that's fine I don't have to work with you because I have three other employers I can work with that are going to put much better uh, my, my people in much better uh, situation and that goes with not just uh, in this current pandemic uh, safety conversation but also uh, uh, Chris brought up the conversation about wage and so I've had conversations with employers that I engage with and say hey I'm gonna be really honest with you I'm talking to employers now that are offering people this wage compared to your wage. And so this is my pool of candidates. And so if I have to make a decision about where I'm referring my candidates to, I'm gonna refer them to the better opportunities. So are you gonna be more competitive so you can start getting into my pool of candidates or is this where you're at and we'll see what we do from there. And, and so I think those are, that's very strong language, but it's much easier to have strong language when you feel confident that you can walk away from the table. Uh, that's always been something that I remember hearing in the past that in the negotiation, the person with the power is the one that can walk away from the table. That's who wins in this negotiation. And so when you're engaging with employers, you need to make sure you have that ability to walk away from the table. And so some of the things, like I mentioned, what we do is we start reducing our interaction with the employer. Uh, we start taking a step back. We're not necessarily referring candidates to them. We're not publicizing their their openings, if anything, we're actually removing openings from any of the uh, media sources that we use, whether that's social media or distribution list. Uh, we use a, uh, a CRM that we manage here in, in the Chicago and area Cook County called Ch Career Connect, where we're constantly inputting case notes and notation, not to, in regards to participants, but in regards to our employers. So we have a case management system, not just for participants, but also for employers where we're case managing our interaction with these employers, our conversations, and so somebody can go in there and say, oh, I see Hugo's working with this employer and this has been their interaction. So I know I shouldn't interact with this employer because Hugo's giving me some red flags, say, hey, this, is, this has been bad business. Uh, watch out for these guys. Uh, and I think that's what's been very helpful with us as well on the business service side is that we do talk to each other. So whether that's just not business service side that I'm coordinating here in our company, but also with other business services from other organizations in the area, uh, there's monthly meetings that our funders provide for us that gives us avenues. But as you're interacting with each other, you get to know who the other business service people are. I, I mentioned to you on a, on a kind of test call that workforce development is a very small uh, niche network. So you kind of know everybody, you kind of know people are jumping around and but you see the same people in different places because we're very, um, we, we enjoy the work that we do, so we stay within the industry, but we may find ourselves in different places. But you get to know the players and, and, and who's involved. And so having that communication with each other uh, uh, gives you a better sense of who you should be interacting with. But uh, interacting with your customers really gives you a sense of how, how 
much interaction should you have with your employers? Great. So uh, Chris and Claire, I'm going to come to both of you to dive a little bit more into strategies. I'm also watching our time because we have a few more questions to get through and we're going to want to turn it over to audience Q&A in about 10 minutes or so. So Chris, I really wanted to turn it over to you. We know that most workforce organizations aren't so fortunate as to have in-house advocacy capacity. And so I know that you have worked with workforce development organizations outside of Job Opportunities Task Force. Can you talk a little bit about ways that you've worked with other workforce development organizations and any advice you have for workforce development folks on, uh, in the conversation right now who are interested in building connections with local advocacy organizations to advocate on behalf of workers? Yeah, 100%. So first and foremost, I want to I want to double down on everything that uh, Hugo said uh, with regards to supporting and advocating for your workers. I think advocacy is actually one of the more important things when it comes to workforce development, because if, if, if you don't advocate for your workers, uh, for your participants, then I mean, who really is? So take the workers voice and their statements as seriously as you would the employer partner. And uh, we just have good conversations with them. I, I want to say when it comes to bringing workforce developers and advocates together, now we at JLTF are fortunate enough that all of our policies are based on what we already have within our programmatic model, which is the project, you know, the participants. But I know a lot of funding for with regards to funders don't allow workforce developers to do that. So I'll, what I would say directly is just partner with an advocacy organization that you're close with, that, that, that you can get in contact with, that you can talk to. Because I, from what I know of every advocacy organization that we've ever worked with, they're always looking for testimonials to take to the legislator. They're always looking for people to just to, even if it's just to make a phone call to the legislator to bring up this issue consistently you know, uh, to talk about driver's licenses, to talk about lack of access to PPE, and then, and then let the legislator work on your behalf because they do work for you. And I think a lot of people are disconnected from the legislators. So just know that as a workforce development organization, you have that you have that access directly. And there are plenty of advocates that are will, will gladly pick up the reins to work on your behalf to push these issues because then they get credit for it as well. So um, I, I, I think that pretty much is all I'm going to say about that question. I'm going to let Claire jump in at this point. That's, that's great. And I just want to reiterate that when you mentioned testimonials, you're talking about worker testimonials. So that's really an opportunity where the capacity that workforce has with access to workers can really come together with the capacity that advocacy has to really um, get out and, and advocate for these policies. So that's incredibly helpful. I hope it's helpful for our audience. And so Claire, turning to you before we move to funder strategies, I want to ask you if you could talk a little bit more about ways that workforce organizations can center equity and their approach to addressing workplace health and safety or other job quality issues. Yeah, so I was looking for the reactions button. Um, I'm like, can we have some finger snaps and um, hand claps over here for what both of my colleagues have shared. Um, and I'll say one, centering workers' rights and needs. There, There is no work without workers, right? And so like, how do we flip the power dynamic between um, this, right now our field has the employer as king, um, and really we need to flip that to say, no, this worker um, is the one who makes sure that that employer has a business, that they're receiving profits. And so how do we center what their needs are and prioritize that over um, an employer who just needs to fill a seat, um, if you will. Um, two, I think really um, to Hugo's point around candidate choice, 
um, making sure that workers have choice. And I think sometimes we like to say, well, you know, any job is better than no job. Um, but what that does is it strips the worker of their um, ability to choose where they want to go. And so our job is really just to give them the option. Um, three, recognizing the power and influence and, and responsibility that we have as talent and workforce development professionals to really advocate on behalf of and, and, and in many ways stand in the gap um, for workers who have been systematically marginalized and silenced. And so recognizing that we have that power and that responsibility, take it seriously and then figure out what's the best way that we can make sure um, that workers are honored, uh, workers are centered, uh, workers are safe, workers are healthy, um, but the relationships that I am building, right? Because then your reputation as an organization and as an individual practitioner is on the line um, with that worker. Um, for practice what we preach, it's one thing to talk about, like I'm advocating for workplace health and safety, but if we're not practicing that in our own organizations. We are not practicing um, the principles of equity. Um, five is tracking the challenges um, that the organization that that are surfaced through workers. I think many times we dismiss the challenges that workers raise in terms of organizational and um, business and employer culture that is really harming to the workers, which then damages the relationship of trust that we're building with that particular worker. And so making sure that we are doing our due diligence in actually tracking that, noting it, every, all the things Hugo said already, um, because then we have more leg to stand on and say, um, employer, your, your culture is really harmful. Your culture is not conducive to the, the workers who I want to connect you to. Um, but what it does is it actually, um, it, it tells the worker that you value the story that they have right instead of marginalizing their voice further what you do is you say i hear you i'm going to document this i'm going to make sure i hold this business accountable because that's your responsibility and um find a way six to really assess the workplace culture that you're then connecting workers to and so that has to be a critical component i think you mentioned that it has to be a critical component of the assessment is this employer is this place of employment is this career opportunity worth me connecting someone is there is there a safety their physical safety going to be jeopardized is their mental and emotional health going to be jeopardized um is their dignity going to be jeopardized is their voice and their full inclusion of their full self going to be jeopardized and those are all equity issues um so those are the six things that i would share thanks so the strategies we're discussing require financial and staff capacity and the, 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 strategy, the strategies we've been discussing also require navigating some complicated power dynamics between um, employers, between workers, between workforce organizations. And so what are some ways that funders can support workforce development professionals to advance workplace health and safety, as well as other crucial issues related to job quality? And Ugo, I'm gonna start off with you. So I, I think there's two things that's very important here. One, in regards to the power dynamic, I had the luxury of when I started doing this line of work prior to this, I mentioned I've been doing this now for a little bit over years, but prior to this, I came over from the private sector. I worked for AT&T. Um, I was a sales manager training a new staff, uh, at a retail site and worked very closely with a business to business services. And they kind of transitioned very well into this type of role with business to business, interacting with businesses and those kind of things. But uh, when I started this particular role, I, 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 I had the great opportunity to work very closely with a organization here called the uh, um, Chicago Job Council, and they had a frontline focus institute. 
And so I was able to go into their job development track and, and had a variety of different trainings in regards to what, what was considered job development. And, and one of the specific trainings I remember having, it was in regards to engaging with employers, right? That power dynamic conversation. And the uh, speaker presenter said something very interesting. He said, if you're already meeting with the employer, you're already in the room. And so you deserve to be there. And if you deserve to be there, they've already given you that power to say you're at my level. So whether you're talking to a C-level person, uh, supervisor, whoever it is, they already said you're at my level and that's why I'm talking to you now. And so they've already given you that, that power. And I think that's very important to understand that sometimes we may feel a little bit uh, uh, standoffish because we're like, I'm talking to the owner of this particular company. I'm talking to the CFO, CEO, whomever it is. And you're looking at them with uh, a doctor's degree or whatever type of education or years of experience or, or mastery in their particular field. And that can be a little intimidating. But I always think of those words that said, they, they've already given you the power and that's why they invited you in. You're in the room. So you deserve to be there. So act like you're there. And so I, I think that's very important. And to the point I made earlier, that having that opportunity to be able to walk away, I think gives you a little bit of power and confidence. Uh, but to know that they're not the only game in town, right? Uh, it's not a one horse town and you're the only person with the horse here. And so I have to do what you want me to do, uh, whatever the case may be, to know that, no, you know what, there's, there's plenty of other employers over there and there's plenty of employers that do value their, their, their employees and are providing support and attention and safety is a concern and, and they are prioritizing and they are providing environments for growth and opportunities. There are people that are doing this. And so it's very easy to go back and say, why aren't you? Because you can't give me that excuse about, you know, money or, or unsuccessful model or whatever the case may be, because they somehow they're making this model work for them. Uh, but in regards to the next part is I think it's very important to, to find funding to advocate for business services because your business services people, not only are they the ones that are going out there and establishing these relationships with employers, but these relationship employers are, are helping your participants and being placed, which is a, a key performance indicator of, of, the, of the type of work that we're doing here. But the other is when you turn around back and go back to your funders, they want to know what employers you're working with. And so your employers now become advocates for you to say, yes, we've worked very closely. We're an employer partner with this organization. We'll write uh, letters of support on your behalf. And so this helps you in searching and finding new uh, uh, funding opportunities because now you have the employers on your back saying, we're submitting uh, new RFPs for this proposal. And if you do award us, well, guess what? We already have the employers in place that we can channel into to be able to provide these services to your people. Great. And Chris, I'm going to turn it over to you. What can funders do to support these types of strategies? Yeah, I'm going to just be blunt. Uh, the primary barrier for most funders is self-imposed, and that's their inability to pay or fund policy or advocacy work. Thinking about everything that you guys have been talking about with regards to the power dynamics between employers and employees, historically, the way that's always been dealt with is through policy. We wouldn't have, uh, there would still be child labor, I mean, there wouldn't be any child labor laws. We wouldn't have OSHA. We wouldn't have a 40-hour work week, like a retaliation. And like I just said, we just passed in the state of Maryland up to five days of leave through the Maryland Healthy Working Families Act. We got resistance, and I just want to say historically, there's always been resistance on every single policy that goes to help workers in this regard. And so there's a, there's a whole game that keeps employers in power over employees uh, in, a, in a very unjust, and as, as Claire will have already mentioned multiple times, very like racially inequitable way. And so the only way we can really like fight to protect is through funding, is through policy advocacy. And so if funders were just willing to straight up uh, fund policy or fund policy activism within the workforce development uh, programs that already exist, 
uh, maybe you'd have a lot of solutions. I just want to say that to say this. Uh, programs can't fix everything. We've been putting people through programs for generations at this point. And uh, we still see that people are coming up with the same issues, the same barriers, the same resistances, the same struggles that they're seeing at work. And that's because of certain policies that have existed years and years and years and years and years before these workers ever even came to those programs. So I would just say fund policy and work with workforce development agencies. Don't try to like mix the, you know, you can mix the funding is what I'm trying to say. Is that, I guess I'll leave it at that. That's, that's great and a really important point and thank, thank you for making it. So, so Claire, we're going to come to you before we uh, turn to a few questions from the Q&A. We'll see how many we have time for. But uh, Claire, what are some ways that you think that funders can really be supporting uh, efforts by workforce development related to workplace health and, health and safety and other job quality issues? Yeah, so again, finger snaps, head nods, hand claps to everything my colleagues have already said. Um, and I just want to double down on something that Chris just mentioned, right? We're talking about years and years of race neutral policy that have gotten us to the outcomes that we are in today. So folks like to ask, why is it important to be race explicit? Because when we were race neutral or colorblind, <laughs> Um, in our approach, it led us to where we are today. So I just want to put that on the table. Thank you, Chris, um, for raising that so I can kind of double down on that. But a few things, to Chris's point, fund advocacy and policy, right? We can't program our way out of these issues. Um, really think, consider multi-year funding, right? Investing in systemic change, change the metrics that we're asking of organizations, invest in Black-led and um, um, people of color-led organizations, um, invest in or consider um, really asking about the ways in which the organization centers workers' voice, centers job quality, centers racial equity, and like explicit, not just adding a few words in a sentence, because we have orgs who like to do that, but really asking about how they, what's their approach to really ensuring that workers are safe and not just physically safe, mentally and emotionally as well, and, and how could they continue to fund to support that work. Um, and then just investing, um, I think, in organizations um, who are not afraid to not only hold employers accountable, but to also hold their funding partners accountable. And, and because there's that power dynamic there as well. But I think Hugo made a really good point. If we're at the table, then there's already a level of um, equal playing field that we're on. And so how do we, how do funders then think of themselves as, as folks who also need to learn and unlearn um, and engage with workforce development and talent professionals as partners in the work and not just um, reinforcing that grantee-grantor dynamic. Great. So I think that's a great transition into our questions. And so uh, we're getting some questions specifically related to the role of unions and the role of labor. And so my question to you all is, how, how does labor and how do unions fit into this conversation, either in terms of the types of work that you're connecting participants to or opportunities to directly um, engage with uh, unions or other labor organizing or workers' rights organizations? And so I'm gonna start with you, Hugo. So, and then, uh, Chris. Thank you, Amanda. Uh, so so our, our, our organization actually manages a program called Construction Works, which sounds very similar to the program Chris is referring to with construction focus and apprenticeship. Uh, so we um, leverage this particular program to be able to kind of provide opportunities for more people of color to enter into the union trade. So we're working very closely with the different union organizations, figuring out what their application process is, uh, leveraging different funding sources to uh, to prevent some of the barriers that people have faced when it comes to applying for these unions, such as the fees or the application fees, uh, previous dues or whatever the case may be. And so we work very closely on that front of the uh, union trades 
part, but in regards to just general unions across the board on the employer side, uh, there are a lot of employers I work with that do have unions. So, so, so it's always a great conversation to make sure you're having with those union representatives to get a better understanding of uh, what are they doing? How are they advocating? Because I'll be really honest, there, there are good unions and there are unions that don't seem to do a lot for their workers other than charge dues. And so I think it's important when you're having this engagement with the employer, if there is a union environment, you have a much better understanding of what is this union doing for these particular employers? When's the last time they actually had a new union agreement? Uh, does it look like this union is actually doing something? Or are you placing somebody into a good paying job, which becomes no longer a good paying job because most of their uh, wages are going to union dues? Uh, that's one. Uh, the other thing is uh, a lot of my role consists of managing and implementing a program called on the job training or OJT is the acronym for it. And so we work very closely with unions in this particular program because we actually have to have them sign off to say, can we do this particular on the job training program at your facility? And just for context, for those that don't know, uh, it's a federal program from the Department of Labor where we put together a training curriculum for employers to implement on site for their new hires and for the companies winning to implement the training curriculums we come up with. Uh, we help them offset their costs by hiring uh, from hiring and training individuals by covering a portion of that individual's wage uh, for them implementing these particular training programs, which we also monitor and uh, document progression and those kind of things. And so what's been really nice, especially with when we have these type of OJT agreements around the job training agreements in place, is that we actually serve as a union steward of source. So I've had scenarios where I'm going in, I have a participant with an employer that we're doing this particular on the job training program with. And we're, uh, just like I mentioned before, we're constantly talking to our participants, getting a feel for what's going on on the job site. And if a concern is raised, we advocate on their behalf. And then we've had scenarios where we actually come in where the employer's telling me, I'm gonna have to write up this person. And then we say, okay, then let me be, let me sit in on that write-up as you're having that conversation. And then we play a little bit of a advocacy right there and then, because sometimes we do find that when, our, when a participant or a customer is being engaged by that employer, there is that power dynamic that we were just referring to, and it's very one-sided. One and so we've been able to go in there and kind of batten things out where we're able to say, well, she did say this, and you're telling me that, well, is there a way we can, she admitted this, can we move past that? And what can we do now to get back to a place of employment and, and equilibrium of the source? And so that's been real, one really nice thing about that particular program is that we, because we have agreements in place, uh, then there's more of that. I can point towards something and say, hey, look, we got it on paper, let's talk about this. Don't dismiss this particular uh, employee so quickly. How can we resolve this so this, this person can continue working and have retention and move forward? Great, and so Chris, I, I wanna go to you and if you have anything to add, if you have thoughts about opportunities to partner with labor around different advocacy issues, that could be interesting to hear about as well. Yeah, I was gonna say uh, with regards to the Job Opportunities Task Force, our Project Jumpstart participants, uh, we are just in general very skeptical about any type of organizations beyond unions that, that will drain uh, funding from our uh, our workers only because especially in Baltimore, Maryland, like it's, it's they're not making, and this is gonna be blunt, they're not making enough in general. And so to, then to lose more wages can be a, a bit of a tricky uh, vine for us to climb. So specifically the way that we've been working with unions in the past has been just straight on policy and advocacy. Uh, unions tend to are just largely more funded and have more people that are working with them. And so when it comes to protesting, when it comes to uh, advocacy work, lobby days, uh, emailing and talking to legislators, going uh, to town halls, we partner with them in that regard and they've been very effective because of course they're advocates already for their workers. Uh, so we just kind of double down on that advocation as well, come together on certain issues and then we all just like move 
forward on specific issues that we see when we're in or testifying in Annapolis. Great. And I, I'm just going to add, there's a really interesting new report that came out in the last week or so that really talks about the relationship between um, unionized workplaces and opportunities to address health and safety issues that, that are arising. And so I'm going to ask my colleagues on the chat if they can share that link as well, um, not to the report itself, but to um, a, an article about the report in case you're interested in learning more about um, the role of labor unions in supporting workplace health and safety. It is a really interesting piece. And so um, I'm going to stop there. That's all the time we have. Uh, thank you so much to Claire, to Chris, to Ugo for joining us today. This was a really terrific discussion we can learn so much from as we think about strengthening not only workplace health and safety, but for addressing a really a wide variety of job quality issues. Many thanks to my Aspen Institute colleagues who are behind the scenes supporting and organizing this event. And thanks so much to all of you in our audience for joining us and sharing your questions and comments. Please, if you can, take a moment to respond to our quick feedback survey at the close of this webinar, or send us an email at eop.aspeninstitute.org and let us know what you think. We love to hear from you and we hope you'll join us next time. Thanks so much.